just before David reads the gospel to us, um, just let me introduce him to you. Uh, David is a postulant with uh, incarnation, and we're hoping that he will uh, be ordained as a deacon and then later on as a priest as time goes by. But we are so grateful to have him and his family as part of our congregation. And uh, David, I would love to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that David has prepared for us. And we ask, Lord, that you will speak deeply to him, even as you speak to us. Help us to listen well and hear the things that are on your heart for us as a community and individuals. Amen. Well, I think Liz has instructed us from the beginning that we should stand when we're supposed to stand. So please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. The reading may be found on page 897 of your pew Bibles, theoretically. John 11, 18 to 44. I'm sorry, 18 to 27. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. I want you to imagine for a moment a great disaster. While on a mission abroad, our founding pastor Liz has been arrested and is currently sitting in a jail over a thousand miles away in a place we'll call the United States of Britannia. We don't know much about this situation. We have a vague awareness that she was spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, and something went wrong, and now she's locked up. Now, who among us wouldn't be alarmed? What should we do? Well, let's say we decide to send a member of our congregation to locate our beloved pastor and take care of her material needs with a gift we send along. Then, to compound the disaster, our messenger falls seriously ill after he arrives. The last we hear of him, he is with Liz, but could very well die of his disease. The scene we've just painted is pretty much the situation the Philippians face when Paul writes this letter to them. He is in jail in some far away place, we're not entirely sure where. One of the churches he founded, one of them that he's most close to, sent help, uh, a man named Epaphroditus. But while he's with Paul, Epaphroditus gets very, very sick. And that's about all they know, the Philippians. Well, it turns out, thanks be to God, that Epaphroditus recovers, and Paul is in good spirits. So Paul decides to send a letter to the Philippians. It's a message of encouragement from Paul, and he sends it with the recovered Epaphroditus to revive the spirits of the Christian community at Philippi. 
Paul takes the occasion to highlight one key reality that is supposed to guide the Philippians' disposition and action. And by extension, this reality is to guide the disposition of our hearts and issue in our own acts of obedience as well. That reality, and really you find this everywhere in Paul's writing, is the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when those who are joined to Christ by faith will be raised with him and live with him forever. The day of Christ is rapidly approaching, in light of which Paul exclaims in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this evening, let's talk about what lies behind and what exactly this thing lying in our future is, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Behind us lie all we've done for ill or for good, all our failures and all our accomplishments. Even our present circumstances can be counted as what lies behind, for the future is as good as ours. And what awaits in the future is none other than Christ come back for us. Now, in Paul's particular situation, he spells out exactly what lies behind, quite explicitly in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, the passage right before what Grant read to us. Paul writes, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What's interesting about Paul's list of reasons for his confidence in the flesh is that almost none of the things he's mentioned have actually changed. He's still circumcised. He's still a Hebrew descended from Benjamin. He still possesses all his training as a Pharisee, and he even seems to have no doubt about his being blameless before the law. Now, this is worth dwelling on for a moment, because we're often told how Paul became a Christian because he discovered it was impossible to fulfill the law's demands. No, righteousness under the law, according to this passage, is apparently quite doable, or at least that seems to be the logical conclusion from the fact that Paul actually pulled it off. The law is fine as far as it goes. The problem 
is that law righteousness is flesh-centered, it is earthbound, and it cannot lead to life. All of it is so much rubbish compared to the resurrection of the dead through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, surely, you might ask, studying biblical doctrine and adhering to God's laws must be part of straining toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ, right? Yes and no. On the one hand, God's call demands our absolute obedience. It is not optional in any way whatsoever. It also demands a biblically informed faith. There's nothing wrong with training in good doctrine. But on the other hand, to hold on to these things, good doctrine, good works, as though they were bargaining chips in negotiations with God, that is what Paul denies so forcefully. On the contrary, all our accomplishments, even and especially our best ones, are rubbish in comparison to the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus. I think we all have a little voice telling us either that we are on balance, good people who sometimes make mistakes, or that we, or more often others, are on balance bad people because of the terrible mistakes we've made with maybe an occasional good deed here and there. What Paul says here and elsewhere is that there is no unbalance. What Paul has to say is terrible news for so-called good people, but it is actually wonderful news for so-called bad people. It means people who fancy themselves good can't actually count their good deeds against the bad. So even the tiniest act that tears of the moral fabric of our lives and of others is a most grievous fault. We are connected to God and to our fellow human beings in an infinite number of ways that are invisible to us, like so many crisscrossing threads in a spider's web. In fact, we are living in a time when we are more acutely aware of the invisible connections between ourselves than perhaps at any other point in our lifetimes. The cause, of course, is the same reason we are meeting as a church via the internet the novel coronavirus. We are weighed down with the knowledge that somewhere in the air between you and me lie little cell pirates that are trying to take over our bodies to produce more of themselves. And this virus does not care how many times you did the right thing, whether by staying indoors, washing with soap, wearing a mask, or bumped elbows instead of shaking hands. You cough, you sneeze, you send the microbes flying, and the rest is statistics. Grace, in its purest sense, means that even on our best behavior, we are at best asymptomatic carriers of sin, and we still need God's free gift of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. But the good news is that God enables us by his spirit to cast aside the weight of every bad thing we've done, and even of the very good things we've done. It also allows us to cast aside the problem of our circumstances, through which God also enables us to strive toward our goal of rejoicing at the Lord's return to subject all things to himself. There's a lot in Paul's circumstances when he wrote to the Philippians that will resonate with us today. Not least of these are government-imposed confinement and the specter of fatal disease, 
although thankfully Epaphroditus recovered. Other parallels exist, especially if we remember that in antiquity, most people were quite poor, especially by today's standards. And this new virus has already begun to create and exacerbate the poverty in our present society. Hours are being cut, jobs are being eliminated, retirement accounts are being decimated. We even have new modern ways in which the dangers of disease and poverty can intersect, like the bondage of medical debt. So what we cannot do is wave away our present anxieties. And I, for one, will be the last person to tell you not to think about COVID-19 or the economy. What we can do, however, and this is what Paul does, is situate these things within the broader perspective of the gospel, which for Paul centers on the Lord's return to earth. So you may be remembering that Philippians is the book in which Paul says in chapter four, verse six, be anxious for nothing. Now, I doubt he means his readers to just grit their teeth and bear it. Much less is he identifying anxiety as a sin, which believe it or not, is a point I've actually heard quite a bit since the outbreak began. No, be anxious for nothing is an encouragement based on a statement of rock solid fact. The Lord is at hand. Those are the words that immediately come before, be anxious for nothing. The Lord is at hand. It's also what Paul prays for near the beginning of the epistle to the Philippians. He writes, this is chapter one, verse nine, and this I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that you may ascertain the things that matter and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I don't think I could improve upon the apostles' own words, which I will conclude with right now. This is the overall shape of our future hope, which is right around the corner. He says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We are feeling very strongly right now the fact that we all have bodies, what we have to do with our bodies, and the risks that are posed to our bodies. And what's more, the risks to our emotions and our spirits based on all these anxieties and do's and don'ts about our bodies. But Paul points to a moment right around the corner when our citizenship in heaven, or we could better render it, the fact that our commonwealth, where we, our true home is in heaven, um, is where we'll be, or rather, it will come to us as Christ comes to us, and he will transform us. And so these bodies about which we have so much care and concern will be transformed so that ours will be like his. And as we read in the Gospel of John, 
that reality is so close, Jesus can say, I am the resurrection. I am the life. If you believe in me, the resurrection is as good as yours now. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please remind us at every moment of every day that we are one moment and one day closer to your glorious return. And that for some reason in your wisdom, you have allowed us to experience a time that is even closer to it than when Paul was writing. We pray, God, that this reality would shape us and cause us to rejoice, as Paul says again and again in the letter to Philippians, rejoice. We pray, God, that our joy comes not from ignoring our circumstances. We also pray that we do not take too much pleasure in dwelling on them. But we pray that our joy comes from this broader cosmic perspective, that you are sending your son, and that all of this will soon pass away, and your will on earth will be done as it is in heaven. Amen. Now I invite you to a period of silent contemplation. I pray that you would contemplate not so much a particular question, so much as this image of Christ being at hand or at the door, and how that informs the way we are acting right now and why that's a comforting thought. Let's pray.